Welcome back everyone to another episode of The Few with me, Boo. Hope your journey towards joining our guest as one of the few is uh, progressing in a way that is allowing you to fulfill those mini dreams, those small wins each and every day. Remember, it's not about the destination, it's all about getting there. One of the reasons why you're not getting there right now as you're watching this podcast is distraction. You're probably distracted listening to this podcast instead of doing what you really need to do to get the job done today. Being distracted is a very primal instinct. It's something that is common to all of us. We're all aware of digital distraction in the world that we live in now. We know we're distracted, yet we still do it. We still feed our brains with junk each and every day. I don't know whether you've got children, I certainly do, from two up to 17. And my goodness, as much as they know it's not good for them, we keep doing it. So today we are going to go on an exploration of the flip side of that coin, which is to explore focus and how to create that and maybe explore what it is about you and me that allows us to become distracted so easy. Our guest today is an absolute superstar on the subject of focus. I'm so glad to have her on the show today. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Katie Stoddard, thank you for joining me on The Few. Let's talk about focus. We know it's good for us. We know we should just sit down, get the job done. But what is it about being a human being that just stops us from focusing on things? Thank you so much, Boo, for the introduction. I guess the best place to start, why is it that we struggle with focus? I feel that we seek distraction as a way of compensating for maybe certain areas in which we're not happy in our lives. So if we're not leading a life that's authentic or aligned in our work, in our health, in our relationship, this creates some inner gap, some inner pain. And as a compensation, we buffer with distractions, with food, with the phone, with Netflix, and we just do other things to avoid confronting this misalignment and gap within us. Do you think there's a disconnect with people purposefully transitioning through, I guess, the different energy states. Sorry, this just popped in my head because I was thinking, I know I have to be focused. I know I have to do things, but there's sometimes I just could not be asked and, and I'm just too tired. But I think I fill my tiredness with scrolling or doing something that still engages my brain rather than relaxing. Is being distracted, I mean, I, I presume it's it's obviously a form of procrastination, like what are some of the drivers that really push us into that behavior, even though we know it's not a good thing to do? Yes, that's a good point. And I think to come back to also what I said just before about being distracted, linked to the fact we're not aligned, this is permanent distraction. This is for people who are constantly distracted or who are constantly almost addicted to their phone. That is as a form of buffering compensation. But what you're talking about is really fatigue, maybe fatigue from decision-making, maybe less willpower, and then we'll go to the easiest option. And I think what it is nowadays with technology in particular, phone, scrolling, social media, is the fact that it's there's a lot of novelty. So we get all that dopamine kick, but without having to make an effort. So for instance, 
the difference between writing your own LinkedIn post versus scrolling other people's LinkedIn posts, writing your own will give you a dopamine kick because it's satisfying once you've done it, but it requires that extra effort, proactivity and thinking and a bit of the prefrontal cortex. But scrolling other people's gives you that dopamine kick faster without actually you making effort. But it's what I call junk dopamine. So it's fast dopamine, but it's not satisfying. You don't feel satisfied after scrolling half an hour, an hour on LinkedIn. But if you spend half an hour writing a really good post, you're happy with it, more of an effort, but you're satisfied. And I think this comparison could be applied to pretty much anything, which is slow dopamine, putting in the effort and then getting a result and junk dopamine, bit of a kick on the moment, but then fills you a bit empty and you're a bit drained afterwards. So there's a lot of talk about those neurochemicals and around dopamine, but I guess like any sort of artificial trigger of dopamine, there tends to be some kind of down on the back of it. Is, is it true to say that if you are distracted through these digital means and you're consuming a lot of that junk dopamine, that there is a downside to that later? Yes. For, I mean, a million percent. Yes, there's a downside. I think there's a downside in many different ways. One of the best ways I have read about it is in uh, Mindful Self-Discipline by Giovanni Dinsman, and I actually know him quite well and we collaborate on projects. He's a great guy and it's a great book. And what he speaks about is we build and maintain then that habit. So what I mean by this is every evening, if when you come home, the first thing you do is collapse on the couch and start scrolling your feed of whatever social media, then it builds that habit and every time it becomes easier. So what happens is then you then have less discipline and willpower, for instance, to get up and start cooking. So I think from a habit perspective, this is what happens. So you're strengthening those neural pathways, but then also your brain is getting used to having those high levels of dopamine quickly. And this is why so many people now say they struggle to read because the difference between watching YouTube videos or looking at Instagram videos or sitting down and reading a book, one requires a lot more focus, a lot more effort for a slower drip of dopamine, great though it is, and the other one is fast dopamine. So then people struggle to go from this fast-paced way of thinking to a more slow-paced yet more rewarding long-term. And this is why they talk about dopamine detox, doing less of those high dopamine activities so your brain can get used to putting in the hard work and the focus for a longer period of time. This is a good point. Can we drill down into that a little bit? What does a dopamine detox look like pragmatically? Time, actions, like what are you doing in that to achieve that, I guess, disconnect from those habits? You'd look at the activities and maybe you quote unquote overindulge in that are fast dopamine. So that tends to be tech related. So it would be things technically like social media, YouTube, uh, could also be obviously Netflix, all the things that, that are fast and intense, but it can also be things like alcohol is very high dopamine, sugar is very high, processed food in general. So it's not just tech, but it's all the things that give you that instant dopamine boost, but don't really add that much to your life, really. Like small doses maybe, but not that much. And so what you do is you'd eliminate all of them and maybe for a day, a weekend, a week, it depends. And then see what happens. <laughs> see if you're able to focus better if you're not checking your emails every five minutes or if your phone is in play mode in another room. See the 
tendency you have to want to maybe pick up the phone every five minutes and refrain from doing it, et cetera, et cetera. What happens when you do dopamine detox? Several things happen. First of all, you gain huge awareness to how hooked you are to certain things. You might realize, wow, I'm always reaching for the phone or I come home in the evening and I, I almost can't stand not to watch Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. You get agitated. You actually have that sense of agitation that you have to do it. Yes, that's the, the brain saying, I want my kick and I'm not getting it. And that frustration comes from that dopamine not coming or being rewarded in the way you expect it. So awareness really goes up. That's one thing. Then you start to rewire some of your behaviors. If for a whole week or a whole month, you hardly use your phone or you don't watch Netflix or you stop a social media, after a couple of weeks, you don't think about it as much. So that also happens. And then a third thing that will happen is your focus and your self-discipline will go up because you're not constantly doing the fast and easy things. Your brain will get used to, oh, okay, this is what it's like to single task. Multitasking would also be something you would cut out in your dopamine detox. So you'd get used to single tasking and doing the deep work and being focused and building that discipline. And yes, those are two, three things that would happen after dopamine detox or during. I was reading some statistics recently where consuming about 16 episodes of Netflix TV per day in zero value add information and this new emerging concept of the forget curve where we're forgetting 90% of what we consume within seven days. Is there a different pattern of learning or different states of information where you've got information that's effectively noise that passes through the brain and information that sticks? I imagine, you know, there are different techniques to make that or convert that information into knowledge and knowledge into wisdom. That's a really good, interesting point. I think to make information stick, then it needs to be associated with quite high emotions. And then I think if we actually use it not long after we remember it. So for instance, let's say with a book you were reading that you want to remember, you would feel quite excited about some of the concepts, for instance, that would make it stick. And if the next day you mentioned it on the podcast or spoke with a friend about it, then it would stick. So I feel the only way to really make information stick is through rep repetition. So you just repeat and repeat, and that can be whether you write an article about it or you journal about it, or you tell a friend, that's the only way I know of to really make information stick, you repeat it, or you just repeat it in your head. Wow, this is such an interesting fact. Wow, that's such a great quote. And you just keep repeating it. And after the 10th or 12th time, suddenly you say it out loud and because it's a quote that really speaks to you. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we all know in a structured learning environment, school, college, university, vocational training, adult learning that we have to consume and write and examine our knowledge, but everything else in life, we just don't apply the same simple techniques to. And we wonder why, you know, we don't grow as people. We had a good conversation earlier about people using distraction as a band-aid for emotional pain. So what does that look like? It probably looks something along the lines of, wow, I really should get into running. You know, this is so important. Plus, you know, the doctor said all the friends, oh, wow, this is so important. And then you're there on the couch. And so you grab your phone because your brain is kind of feeling guilty and you sort of think you should do it, but maybe it's out of your comfort zone or you haven't done it in a long time or you're afraid of failing. And so you don't. So this could be running. It could be relationship. It could be your work, wow, I really want to start my own business. Maybe every day someone goes to work and thinks, wow, wouldn't it be good? And knows exactly what they want to do, but then they don't. 
and instead they just dive into their work, almost become workaholics, answer a ton of emails, keep busy, keep busy, keep busy. And this is actually why I named my company The Focus Bee, because I realized that everyone are, is busy bee. They're all busy and it's great to be hardworking and it's great to be a high performer and it's great to have great results, but not just busy, not just doing work for the sake of doing work, to just do all these little urgent things, because then that's the same as being chronically distracted. But a lot of people say to me, and they're business owners, successful people, they're that way because they work hard. They do 18 hours a day. They're From the minute they wake up to the minute they go to, to sleep and what they dream about is what they do. Their identity and their business is all, all one and the same. Sometimes it's hard to convince people that letting that go and being more purposeful with time actually is better for you. How do you articulate that? What's the proof or the storytelling around not being a workaholic? Yes, it is tricky. And I have coached some people on, for instance, taking half a Friday off and the amount of resistance is phenomenal. And the, the truth is, there is some truth, obviously, to what you were saying and working all those hours because taking a lot of actions can lead and often does lead to some form of success. Yes. Now, the thing is, which actions and is it best to do a ton of tiny actions one after the next and just grind or is it best to just pause, see what works best and just do that one big action, right? So that's the debate. I think the way I often, well, there's different ways of looking at it, but one of them is that we are more productive with breaks and there's a lot of studies on this and there's a whole ultradium rhythm and it's the way our brain works. And then we're far more effective in doing deep work and single tasking after even just a 10 minute break. That's one thing on a sort of daily basis and on a more weekly, monthly, yearly basis. I feel that it needs to be that balance between the reflection and the action. And if we don't pause and reflect, we might end up still quote unquote successful but maybe we're not enjoying it that much anymore. Maybe we've taken on some clients where it's not such a good fit, but we're not pausing and we're not reflecting which direction we want to go into. So we just continue. I mean, I think it's even Bill Gates, right? That takes a week off every year, something like that, to do a full week reflection. And I think more than a week a year. I mean, good if he gets a week a year, but I think proper weekends, totally disconnect. Maybe you walk in nature and you suddenly realize why I really want to do this with my podcast or this in my business or this moving forward or reach out to that person. But if we don't have that space, we don't get those insights. And I think it also comes down to balancing the nervous system. So if we're always in sympathetic nervous system, which most of us tend to be, and if we, on top of that in the evening, spend time on our phone and Netflix, et cetera, that's still in the sympathetic nervous system, then our brain can't really function as effectively than if we're in action mode and in rest, recuperation, parasympathetic, relaxing, and also space for the epiphanies to happen. They happen in that space. And through those epiphanies, you can get the best results in your business. So it's that balance really. So talk through those, because I've heard this, this language before, the sympathetic, the parasympathetic. And I know when people start to, on their growth journey, they start to be exposed to this terminology, but what does it all mean exactly? Okay. So they're basically the two modes of the nervous system. And one of them is the sympathetic, which is action. It's taking action, it's being in movement. And the other one is the parasympathetic, which is resting, the rest, digest side. And I once heard this mentor or an entrepreneur asking actually, what is a successful entrepreneur? Like what's the definition? 
And so everyone thinks and says, you know, maybe money or this or results. And then she said, a successful entrepreneur is someone who has a balanced nervous system. I thought, wow, okay. But what she means is, and this is so true, it means that if I just click my fingers, you can go into action mode. Let's say you're having a lunch break, you're relaxed, and then someone goes, okay, we've got a call, Kenya, and you straight away responsive, you're calm, you compose, you can go into action mode instantly. That's switching on your sympathetic nervous system. But in the same way, well, most entrepreneurs don't manage as much, you can shut down your computer, it's the end of the day, and go and relax and go for a meal with friends and not think about work. And if you're able to on command switch on and switch off your nervous system, this actually means, or it's a proof maybe, that your nervous system is well balanced, this ability to switch from one aspect to the other at will. And if it's not well balanced, this leads to always being in sympathetic mode, always being in action mode, maybe not falling asleep because you've got all those thoughts in your mind nonstop, which long-term can lead maybe to burnout. Or on the other side, which is rarer as entrepreneurs, but could happen, this inability to stop moving. Just like, oh, I can't be bothered today. I'm not motivated. And you just want to just walk around, do your own thing, and you can't be bothered to take any actions. And then you're just almost overly relaxed. That's more rare. But so Either of those scenarios, we just don't have as much of a balanced nervous system. We're really a quasi-sympathetic where we're neither, we're neither. We're sort of just switching very quickly between the two, which also creates more demand on our, on our energy. But to be controversial here, if we're in sympathetic mode all the time and we're entrepreneurs that get distracted and scroll, but in the background, we're actually continually focused on our business and our product. Is that not a form of focus or are we just kidding ourselves? That's a form of focus, but it might not be what long-term supports best well-being and high performance because often we benefit most from fully switching off and then coming back. And if we're always on, yes, we can drive, we can push, we can have ideas, we can make progress, but it's maybe not what's best for our own inner well-being and high performance in the long run. So you, you have a concept around the focus B. You've written a book. You've got a few key characters in there, the tea party, the chess master. I mean, what does focus look like to Katie? What is your, I guess, journey for people who are seeking to rebalance, to be more focused? Just looking at some of the research, I think it was a Japanese study a couple of years ago around getting your mental state into the zone. And, and they were sort of articulating as about 26 minutes for a normal person and about 20 minutes for an athlete. But to actually get focused is a, I'm asking you two questions here. So let's answer this one first. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. Getting into a state of mental focus is not something that's just click my fingers, I want to be focused, is it? No, but it does help when you set the intention. So how long does it take? Depends. I think it really just depends on the day and how much you've trained it. The way I go about it, it's pretty straightforward. When I start my day, I write my one to three main outcomes for the day. And I like to begin the day instantly with that main task, without checking emails, etc. most important task. And then I just do that task. And so sometimes, let's say it's preparing my next presentation for a keynote, for example, 
then sometimes I'm almost instantly focused. Sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I've been thinking about this topic. I have a few ideas. I've done something a bit similar, but it's different. Oh, let me look at my slides from last time. Boom, boom, boom. And within two, three minutes, I'm super focused. Other days, <laughs> I'm human and I think, wow, I really can't be bothered. Maybe I could do this instead. Oh, uh, what am I going to talk about? Oh, I spoke about that last time, but I'm not feeling inspired. This is kind of a bit of a different twist, et cetera, et cetera, all that mental dialogue. Then the temptation to do something else is huge. Most days I stick with the task unless I literally feel somehow like the moment is off, that I know within a day or two it'll be the right moment. And then I do do it within a day or two. I don't procrastinate for a million years. So mostly I do stick with it though. And then I think what you said, maybe 15 to 20 minutes, it really is this sort of grind at the beginning. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, let me look again. Let me start. Let me write a few bullet points and think about it a bit. And then suddenly I get in the flow. And what's quite funny is I remember this one time, not that long ago, maybe two weeks ago, where I really didn't feel inspired. I almost thought, no, okay, I'll be another day. I'm just not feeling it. And I thought, no, no, come on. I've got two hours now. This is the right moment to do it. Let's do it. And then I was really in flow and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. We can pivot it around. But the trick is not to do something else. Like if you do this, it's like not even opening the emails because then that's it. Then it's a rabbit hole. Then you start doing something else. Then it's like, oh, well, I only have half an hour left till I have calls, et cetera. There's no point. And then, you know, that's that. So it's really just sticking with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm too tired to exercise, but then you go and you exercise and within 10, 15 minutes, you're not too tired anymore, right? So you talk about you know, short-term focus, long-term focus, selective focus. What is the difference? And to get yourself into those states, and I'll come back to the book in a minute, I guess what's the buy-in and why have both? Why not just have focus and not focused? <laughs> I mean, why not? But okay, so short-term focus is the ability to be focused on what you're doing right now, like us having the interview, like you asking the questions or me answering them. And not being here and being <laughs> pretending that I'm on, you know, I'm listening to you at the same time, you know, looking at my calendar, right? Yeah, that would be tricky, especially for something like an interview. Generally, it's quite a full uh, focus. So yeah, that's short-term focus. Then long-term focus is having that clarity on your goals and your direction. So for instance, in your case, you'd be like, having the few podcasts because you want to contribute and help other people to grow and thrive in their life and their work. That's your long-term focus, for instance. And this short-term focus contributes to your long-term focus. So this is pretty obvious. And then selective focus is what I thought of as we can choose at any given moment what we focus on. So in this case, we've got a setting that's pretty clear. Okay, it's going to be the podcast interview. But when we're walking down the street, we could focus on the sky, our thoughts, the people passing by. And so what I realized is when we have this free choice, what to focus on, if we want to be very intentional, which is what I'm most passionate about, living with intention, which is choosing what you want to be doing and then doing it, I thought, well, I don't really know what to focus on in those moments. And so I realized that there were a few things, and mostly this comes down to mindfulness and spirituality, but it was really this idea of being present in the moment, which is in the case of walking down the street, fully observing the energy in the, in the street, looking at the people going by, looking at the trees, and not being too lost in our thoughts. Now, I know it's normal to have thoughts in the background when we walk, but I feel that sometimes they dominate and you just don't remember the entire walk. And that's fine. 
if that's how people want to live and walk. But what I realized is that personally, when I did this, especially on a hike or really nice walk in nature, I sort of felt that I hadn't even walked. I mean, I could feel it in my legs, but my mind was on the whole time, sometimes reciting of speech or thinking of my marketing strategy. And I arrived back home be like, yeah, I vaguely remember looking at the sea. Yeah, there were some trees. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, if we can be a bit more present, that would be nice. And that's what I call selective focus. I find it really hard. I'll go for a walk or run or some exercise and get out because I know it's the right thing to do. But the minute I start, I'm just hurrying for it to be over so I can get on with something else that I need to do. Sometimes all these best intentions things are great, but I'll be halfway through my walk and I'll be walking for half an hour and I will still feel like that. I will find the whole thing annoying because it's getting in the way. So what do we do about that? We have these conversations around, you know, you're tired, go and exercise and you're 30 minutes in and you're still tired and you still hate it. Because I think sometimes when we're in a space where we help people is we only have, you know, 45 minutes to talk. So we talk about some intentional things but it doesn't always work, right? It doesn't always kick in. You might have the best of intentions to not use your phone, but you you still use it. So how important is it to also forgive yourself and to give yourself permission to try some of these things and maybe they don't work? Where does that fit into the whole? How do you know when you've had an intention that for whatever reason you are unable to fulfill and sticking with it? Yes, I think compassion is super important. And I think the more compassion we have, the easier it is actually to stick to a lot of these things because often some of our goals or ambitions or habits we want to do come from a place of feeling we're not enough. So we think, oh, if I do this or if I become hyper-sportive or have a seven-figure business or whatever it is, then I'm worthy. And so we aim for all these things because we feel a lack. And the second we start to apply a lot more compassion to ourselves, we realize, hey, it's nice if I do all these things and it's good, it's good for my health or it's fun, but I don't have to fill this inner gap. So I think having that compassion is huge, but equally the discipline. <laughs> so it's both the compassion and the discipline. And so it's a constant balance. I have it all the time. I often think if it really doesn't feel aligned one day to exercise, I won't because I have in the past exercised and then gotten sick because sometimes your body is saying, hey, now's not the moment. And then you add that extra cortisol and then you get sick for a week, not worth it. But also the example of what you were saying of uh, getting yourself to exercise, I had that on Saturday and there I could just tell it was laziness. It wasn't just laziness. I was super hungry and it's very hard to exercise when I'm super hungry. Anyway, I still went because... I want to be disciplined and I wanted to go for a run. And so I went and it was so sunny and it was beautiful. And I thought it's always worth being disciplined if you're not being crazy, right? If you're not really not. So there's a difference between I'm lazy, I can't be bothered, or it's kind of hard for me to exercise when I'm like super hungry. But then I ate and it was all good <laughs> versus, okay, this is really not feeling good right now. I'm not sure why, but I can just sense like my body is just saying no. And they feel differently. It's hard at first because we lie to ourselves and we say that the laziness is it doesn't feel right. But when you really start to be honest, you're like, this is lazy. This is, it doesn't feel right. And they're different. And I guess it's better off being in the state to make that decision. If you start exercising and it's literally like my body's saying no, then stop rather than make the decision beforehand or start writing. And if you're just not getting in the zone within 15, 20 minutes, yeah. And I think you're right. I think distraction is the perfect excuse for everything because you're 
I know there's something about it, isn't there? The brain just accepts that function of work as a tick in the box. And hey, I'm busy up here. I'm shuffling. My neurons are firing. I'm shuffling thought worms everywhere. I'm busy up here. And I've now convinced myself that I'm busy working. Let's get into the book. So what motivated you to write the book and write about the magic of focus? What was the impetus behind that for you personally? Well, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this topic. And then I explored it. And I think most of the time when we write a book, I'd be curious to hear other people's thoughts on it. It comes from the desire to grow and to contribute. So grow because we want to learn and develop on this topic and learn. But if it was just for ourselves, we can just learn about it, take some notes and that's it, and then contribute. And I think maybe a third element would be art. So the idea of exploring this form of art I've always loved writing and I've always enjoyed reading a lot of books so I think from that there was also a yeah more creative aspect I feel I, I was reading at the time The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron and that helped me a lot and so there was a bit of an exploration of what is creativity what boundaries can I push how comfortable can I be with this inner self-doubt chronic inner self-doubt I think writing a book was probably one of the hardest things I've done in my business in terms of coping with that voice telling you it's not good. <laughs> so we can have this in a sales call, we can have it on a podcast interview, etc. I had it daily when I wrote and I think that was the journey that I was meant to have and that helped and I felt that made me stronger. So just literally showing up, start writing, thinking this is absolutely terrible and continue to write every single morning <laughs> it's quite fun it's quite fun the the artist way really really helped and then yes and then I guess being able to accept that you're not Tolstoy which is hard because I love Tolstoy and accept that maybe you're not going to be you know the world literary person but you're still producing something and you still have something to say this is very hard for people I think mostly perfectionists who have these high standards of in an area or another. And then if they can't meet it, they prefer not to do it at all. I don't have it in that many areas, but I definitely had it in writing. This tendency of, wow, if it can't be absolute genius, then might as well chuck it. And then I learned to not think that way. So it was a big mindset growth. And then it's just been great contributing and sharing it with people and getting feedback from people. And yes, it's been fun. So tell us a little bit about the characters in the book. The characters. Well, the main character is the reader because I speak about it in the second person because I like the idea of taking the reader on an adventure and going through the jungle. Then mostly the reader has maybe some flashback and memories and insights. And it's more in the third part that he meets the tea party and the chess master. And I think the reason I came up with those characters, obviously there's a big Alice in Wonderland reference. That's because I love Alice in Wonderland, but also this idea of falling down the rabbit hole, of always being busy, of getting caught up. That was my vision for living life on autopilot, this falling down the rabbit hole. And going through the jungle is the idea of exploring what focus means and learning to live with intention. Because as we know, when we live with intention, it's not just a clear path. <laughs> it's a little more like a jungle. Yeah, and so I think that's a good metaphor for what it's like to live uh, and work with intention. And then the characters, yes, the Mad Hatter, for instance, who constantly speaks to himself aloud is really a metaphor for what most of us are like in our own mind. And I just wanted to highlight, this is kind of what we're doing all the time. It's okay, but maybe we can turn down the volume and focus on life, 
presence, other people, and not be too caught up in our own minds all the time. I know that there's new phenomenons now like vast and variable attention syndromes and ADHD medication is five times more prescribed than at any other point in time. If you had three things to hang your hat on, right? And I want to look at it at two different levels. The first one is as a teenager or in the more formative stages, would there be sort of three tips that you would offer someone to get their levels of focus up? And then what would that look like? Again, for somebody that's established, they have their qualification, they're in the grind. Let's start, you know, at a formative kind of ages. What are three things people are going to really hang their hat on to improve their focus and deep work? Well, it, the first one might be a bit controversial and they might not like it, but it would obviously be as much as possible to almost not have a phone. Not have a phone is kind of considered impossible. So it would be fix yourself half an hour a day, something like that. I think I actually gave a workshop to a group of teenagers a month ago and they all said they super struggled with their phones and i thought wow this is just like a huge addiction nowadays so i definitely say a become aware of it and then measure how much you're spending time on it and what are you using your phone most for and then reduce it to bare minimum and most days aside from when i have calls i use it less than half an hour whatsapp photos google maps that's it don't have instagram don't do it and i don't do my linkedin and emails on my phone etc that just makes for a way healthier environment and space so i'd say obviously the phone then the single the second thing i'd say is to only do one thing at a time this works also for adults so single tasking which again if you're not using your phone and you're not doing a lot of different things on the computer as a teenager probably you would single task i mean if you're learning a class you just learn that class so that would work quite well and then i'd say meditation i actually met so one of the teenagers that i spoke to a month ago said he really worked on focus he had a real focus problem so he said maybe adhd but he was very focused and he said that he'd been meditating and he hadn't been using his phone as much and that he had practiced, which I also think is really good, being in a queue, being on the train, wherever it is, and just not checking the phone. So Can you imagine getting a walking past a bus stop or a train station and people don't have their heads buried in their phone. I can't even imagine that in the rest of humanity that ever actually happening. Yes, yes. It's kind of strange for me when I, for example, go for a meal on my own and I'm eating on my own in a restaurant maybe when I'm traveling for business or something and I'm like the only person not on the phone or with someone. It's sort of, sometimes I feel like, wow, like am I like, <laughs> all, all the same, but the metros are all in the airport and like everyone, and I'm just like, okay, right. It makes you feel a bit strange. I think people are intimidated by going down to a restaurant when they're traveling or sitting by themselves. I think that in itself is a terrifying prospect for a lot of people. Yes, I mean, like anything, it comes with practice. If you do it, it's also the perfect opportunity to pause and to reflect and to see how things are going in your life and to think a bit and to enjoy your food. I sometimes feel when I'm eating on my own, I focus more on the food and not just the conversation. But yes, it can be intimidating for people. But I'd say in general, being able to not be on your phone in a queue, restaurant, waiting for the bus, etc. That's pretty good training for focus. Okay. So that's kind of teenage formative years. Now, as we move into, you know, late thirties, forties, well-established lifestyles in a relationship, any other 
variances to that. Maybe if you're not hooked into technology as a kid, it's something that you were introduced to five, 10 years ago. Is there anything that differs as you get older? I think it's probably similar, but then it was probably a good moment to really ask yourself those questions. And if, for instance, you're going to have extra alcohol or serve yourself more food or scroll the phone, et cetera, ask yourself, what are you avoiding and what are you trying to buffer or compensate for? So I noticed that there were times where maybe I wanted to eat something extra and I was fasting in the evening, for instance. And in my case, it would just be to like eat some banana, actually banana and tahini, which is like what I eat all the time. Anyway, <laughs> whenever I feel like I'm hungry in the evening, but I don't really want to eat. And so I feel this impulse to eat and I would ask myself why. So what is it about? Because are you really hungry? Most times I'm not just thirsty, just need water. And then I'd realize maybe it's a way of calming my nerves. A lot of things happen during the day, or maybe I'm a bit bored or maybe I'm so a lot of things come up when instead of indulging in the behavior, we just pause and think, what am I avoiding? What am I not coping with? What am I trying to suppress? Because when you don't do that, a lot of things emerge. I was listening to an episode by Brooke Castillo last week on the Life Coach School podcast. And she said, she explained her journey of quitting alcohol. And she said, but when she did that, loads of things emerge that she'd just been coping with by drinking. And that was like a very interesting episode. And I think it could be applied to everyone with things like multitasking, the phone, Netflix, all these addictive behaviors that we have that don't really serve us. That's mm, no, a very insightful. I mean, I just find it fascinating. And 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have had the information available to us to have awareness of this. But now we have fairly deep awareness of this challenge in humanity, but we still find it hard or don't even bother to try and manage this. I see technology-based distraction as you know, one of the biggest challenges to us as the human race moving forward. I mean, it just seems to be so endemic. Katie, look, thanks so much for sharing your insights on focus. Where can we find you if we really want to get our focus on and make a commitment to driving distractions from our life? The best place to find me is katiestoddart.com, my website or LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot, katiestoddart on LinkedIn. And also check out my podcast, The Focus Beast Show. I talk a lot about focus, but also high performance and a lot of topics around leadership also. So that's probably the best place to find me. Awesome, Katie. Thanks so much for being generous. All of those links will be down in the show notes. So just look below and reach out to Katie to get your focus A game on. Katie, thanks again so much for being on The Few Podcast and helping our listeners achieve the things that mean everything to them in life. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.